The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History 101. I am Patrick Default, and as always, I am joined by the phenomenal Matthew Carter. Hello. On today's episode, we are going to discuss. The family, major families of baseball, father-son duos, brother-brother duos, mm-hmm. um, there's more than we realize getting into this, so this might end up being a two-parter that we revisit later down the road, but for now you're just getting one. Oh yeah. Um, and I think where we wanted to start off after having a discussion about it was with the uh, Wainer brothers, and they're the only brother combination ever to get elected into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. We have Paul Big Poison Wainer. He was born in 1903 in April. And Lloyd Little Poison. He was March 16, 1906. Both of them out of Oklahoma. And they were uh, outfielders in the Pirates organization. Well, not even an organization. In that Pirates Big Leagues. Yep. From 27 to 40. And they, between the two of them, they had 5,611 hits. One of them was in the 3,000 hit club. The other one had about 2,500, just short, 2465-ish. Mm-hmm. I'll forget the number I saw a minute ago. Um, and Paul was one of the first eight men to hit 3,000 hits, going for 3,152 in his career. Yes, it's just, they were both very great hitters, especially Paul. But, uh, you know, Paul came to the Pirates first in 1926. And he was, fun, he was a good, he was a good player. But that year was a little turmoil because um, the year before the Pirates won the World Series, but then they just kind of collapsed and they got rid. You know, there was tension between the manager Bill McKechnie and other players and stuff like that. But then in '27, Lloyd Wainer joins the Pirates. Paul and Lloyd are in the outfield. They're both hitting. I think they both hit over 300 that year. Um, he hit 355 and his brother hit 380. Yeah, so they, they, I don't know if they, I don't know, I don't think they would leave. Yeah, and that was his first year out of college. There was no minor leagues then. He right. came straight out of, um, let's see here, he came straight out of East Central State College in Ada, Oklahoma and went straight to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. And I'm sure his brother is like, hey, I know this guy. Yeah, <laughs> they were that good. And they helped lead the Pirates to the National League Championship in 1927. It's, yeah, um, Paul won the NL batting crown and the MVP that year. Yeah, I mean, that was a magical season for the Wainer brothers. The Wainer Wonders. The Wainer Wonders, yeah. And, you know, they I think that was the year they got their nicknames Big Poison Little Poison because they just hit, hit the ball. They could hit. And, unfortunately, they lost to the Murderers Joe Yankees in the World Series in four straight. Mm-hmm. Now... Yeah, they, um, but the Wainers combined for a 367 batting average. Lloyd hit 400, and his brother hit 357. So, you know, they were not the... Oh, game. wait. Let me run that back. Oop. Lloyd hit 400, but then you had 357 combined by Ruth and Gehrig. Oh, okay. And um, when the series ended, the Wainers joined Ruth and Gehrig on a 16-week vaudeville circuit with Paul playing the saxophone and Lloyd playing a violin. Yeah. Multi-talented brothers. 
Yeah, players did that back in the days, more so in the early 1900s, but even into the 20s. They, you know, they went on the road, did vaudeville acts and to make more money because you know they weren't making multi-million dollar salaries like they are now. So they did stuff in the off season to make more money. Yeah, pre-free agency baseball was a little more yeah. tough to get your nut, I guess. Yeah, if you want to put it that way, they were still making. Ball players were still making more money compared to regular workers, but still, you know. <laughs> they weren't millionaires. No, they weren't millionaires. Inflation. But they played together, they continued to play together on the Pirates until after the 1940 season, and after that they went their separate ways. Or I know that, we'll have to go back to the baseball reference, but Paul, Paul Wainer went to the Brooklyn Dodgers in 41, and he helped lead them to the NL National League pennant. And they had a lot. The, the Dodgers had a lot of uh, uh, veteran players on that team in '41. They had like Billy Herman. They had uh, Leo DeRocher was the player manager. Let's see, that's '41 Dodgers. They had a bunch of players, and um, Dolph Camilli, uh, Pete Reeser, Joe Medwick, Joe Ducky Medwick, Pee Wee Reese was a rookie that year. Yeah, so they went that way. And then 42, Paul ends up on the Boston Braves. And that year he got his 3,000th career hit. Yep, it was on June 17th. He hit a hard ground grounder that Cincinnati shortstop Eddie Yost juiced. J O O S T. Yost Juiced. Juiced. Sure that, he was the Phillies' last manager. We talked about him in the last episode. We did. You're right. Yeah. Um, he knocked it down, but he couldn't hold on. And uh, the scorekeeper scored it a hit, and the crowd roared, but uh, Wainer was on first base and said, No, 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 that's not a fucking hit. Yeah. He didn't, want, he didn't want his hit to come like that. He wanted to lace a double in the gap. Right. He, th- th- he, that actually happened. That actually happened. Two days later, the score the scorekeeper actually reversed his scoring because of Wainer saying, I don't want that to count as a hit for me. Mm-hmm. And two days later, he hit a, a clean single in the gap. Yep. Um, he got a 3,000 fit. I'm also a big fan of this family and how they got their nicknames. Um, according to one legend, they acquired their nicknames in Brooklyn, where Paul was being called the big person, mm-hmm. and Lloyd was being called the little person. But with that Brooklyn accent... Look at the big poison. Look at the big poison. So it became big poison and little poison. Yeah, I, I think that's really, that's really <laughs> neat. Yeah. Um, and then he goes back to the Dodgers, and then in '44, he joins the New York Yankees. Now you have to understand. The he four, was at the Braves for a brief period, in between the two, also. That's true. He, Braves, the Dodgers. You know, that's where Braves was where he got his three thousand hit. Yeah, he was with the Braves when he got his hit. Anyway. 44, in the middle of the season, he joins the New York Yankees. And you have to understand, in the 40s, the great players like Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams, they're all fighting World War II. So Major League Baseball had to use you know, veteran players like Wainer and untested rookies to help fill their rosters. And so DiMaggio's gone. We need a we need a center fielder. Let's get Paul Wainer, and they got Paul Wainer because he's he's not he's too old. He's not going to go fight the war, you know. And so he and he, he joins the Yankees in '44, and then 1945, 
And I wrote a shortstop article on this. He became their hitting coach, correct? I believe he became their hitting coach. He played one game in 45. He pinched, it was a, he was a pinch hitter, and he got on base with a walk, and then he went to second base, and then he was stranded on second, and that ended his career in the major leagues. If we're filling voids during the war, and all of our big names have been drafted and are going to play, why not draft an older guy that's hit 605 career home? Like, that's, that's definitely using to fill up for. Yeah. Like, why would you not want a guy putting those numbers up? Yeah. And, uh, and you, and I, self, self, uh, promotion here. I wrote a shortstop article on the Hall of Fame's website about Paul Wainer. And he, it's a picture of Paul doing a handstand on a chair. This, somebody from Look Magazine came to like take pictures of Paul Wainer to put in an article for Look Magazine. And one of the pictures was him doing a handstand on a chair. And like he's wearing a cowboy hat while he's doing this handstand. And it's a really neat picture. So I would recommend going to the Hall of Fame's website, read the article, and see the picture. Where would our listeners go to find this article? So it is under, on the Baseball Hall of Fame's website, it's under... The section on the, the homepage says Our Stories, and you click that, and then under the Our Stories, one of these one of the many sections is Short Stops, or hashtag Short Stops. You click that, and you have to scroll down some because there's a bunch, but there's one, my, my one of Wainers called Wainers Last Stand. And if you go on there, you can find the article there. And I highly recommend y'all going and looking at those articles. Um, even if they're not articles by Matthew, they're all very well written, very well researched, and very interesting facts that line up with what Matthew and I are doing here. Yeah, and they're all about artifacts or photographs in the Hall of Fame's collection. And, you know, it's, if, even for somebody who can't visit the Hall of Fame, you know, reading those articles can help you imagine what it's like to be at the Hall of Fame in some way, you know. So I've got one more thing to add to the Wainers. Mm-hmm. Lloyd Wainer. In his rookie year, he hit, he uh, recorded 223 hits, mm-hmm. and that led, and, it, and then he also led the National League in singles in 27, 28, 29, and 31, setting a league record in 31. 5'8", 142. He just ran a bunch of balls out because he was quick. Yeah. Um, he was a 632 hitter, and in 1930 he wound up with 2,500, 2,459 hits, 2,500 hits, and a 316 batting average. Yeah. Um, Hall of Fame caliber. The standard is either 300 or 3,000 hits, if I'm not mistaken. That's the standard. Yeah, and you know that most people look by. And um, his brother hit both. He hit one of the two, and uh, yeah, he was only a one-time All-Star, also. Yeah, I mean, of course. Uh, yeah. I think times were different. Maybe that was more yeah. of an occasion. Yeah, he made it in 1938. That mm-hmm. was Lloyd's year. I don't know about Paul. We have to go look it up, but surely he was an All-Star. So on 41, so we already talked about our Paul went after the Pirates. Lloyd, in 41, he goes to the Boston Braves in the middle of the 41 season. And then he goes to Philadelphia in 42 for the Phillies. He sits out the 43 season. There's a reason for that. I'll we'll have to look it up. And then in 44, he joined, he's in Brooklyn for 15 games. And then in the middle of the 44 season, he goes back to the Pirates so his brother was in Brooklyn in 43 also for 82 games. So that might be a little... Yeah. 
So he goes back. So Lloyd goes back to the Pirates in '44, and then he finishes his career with the Pirates in '45, playing 23 games and hitting 263. So I guess his situation, you know, was also probably similar to Paul's because World War II, they need veteran players. Lloyd's still playing. Put him on the roster, you know. And we were talking about Lloyd only making one All-Star game. Paul made four in 1933, 34, 35, and 37 as a right fielder. They were both great players, but you I would have to say that Paul was better. Like if, you're, if you're going by wins above replacement, Paul was probably the better player than Lloyd, but they both could hit. Paul got elected to the Hall of Fame in 1952. I mean, you know, not a veterans committee, I would say. But Lloyd got elected... What year did the Hall of Fame start? 1930... Well, they first started elected people in 36. So he got elected when there were probably, what, maybe 50 people in it? Uh, yeah, somewhere-ish. 50, 60, 70, somewhere in there. He gets elected in 1952. Lloyd Wainer, his brother, gets elected in 1967 by the Veterans Committee. But, you know, they're both... Both of them did something that Patrick and I never did and is playing the major leagues. I don't give a damn if you're there just for one spot start and you throw the two hitters, you made it to the show. Absolutely. Nobody can ever take that away from The only brothers to be elected to the Hall of Fame. So, I think... Is I there, think there's not much more to be said about them. No. So. Alright, so that wraps up, that wraps up the uh, Wayner family. The next thing we're going to get to is the McPhail's. Um, Leland Stanford McPhail Sr. is the first part of this family we're going to get into. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 78. He was an executive for multiple teams. Um, in the 30s, he was a lawyer. He owned some department stores. He was a World War I veteran, and he bought a share of a minor league baseball team in Columbus, Ohio. And um, he incorporated it into Branch Rickey's farm system, which might have been one of their early farm teams. Yeah, so it's weird because they, the Cardinals also had the Rochester Red Wings in the International League. Both American Association and the International League are considered uh, AAA standard teams. So back then it was different. The Cardinals had two AAA teams. They had the Columbus Redbirds, which was Mac Bale's team, and then the Rochester Red Wings. So I just thought that was bizarre and unique, you know. You, you can't do that today. Um, and a big part about him buying into that team, um, less so than buying in the way he did, is that even though they were struggling financially, he built them a new stadium yep. out of his own pocket and installed floodlights. Yes. Um, and he also introduced a special ticket package for women and children, but they didn't have to pay as much to get into the games. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in 1930. In 1934, because of his work there and making this fledgling team an attraction, he was hired by the uh, Cincinnati Reds, and he made the Reds the first team to ever fly to the Red Games, mm-hmm. which is standard now. First class, like, you know, the Braves, they're flying, they got their own Delta plane, you know? Yeah. But most importantly, during his time with the Reds, he brought night games to Major League Baseball. He put them at Crossley Field, 20,000 fans, May 24th, 1935. 
Yes. St. Paul likes to use his mind recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and a quote from him is, Day baseball is now dead for all practice, practical purposes. <laughs> Sooner or later, the game will be played in its entirety at night, and as I've said before, then baseball will be squarely in the amusement, the entertainment business, along with wrestling, midget car racing, and the horse tracks. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah, Larry McPhail is colorful. Yeah, I know. And the Reds, I mean, they didn't win any championships with McPhail's leadership. But, you know, he he's a good general manager. He brought fans to the games. He made them somewhat competitive. And eventually, after he left, the Reds won the National League pin in 39, and then in 1940, they won the pin in the World Series. So I guess he kind of put stuff in motion for the Reds to be successful. And then in 1938, well, no, after the 36th season, he becomes a banker. Like, he's leaves baseball. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, they worked for the Brooklyn Trust Company, and he bailed out the Dodgers. Yeah. And then in 1938, he joins the Dodgers as a general manager. He brings night games to Evans Field. And radio broadcasts. And radio broadcasts. And fun fact, the first night game at Evans Field was where Reds pitcher Johnny Vandermeer pitched his second consecutive no-hitter. He's the only person to throw two consecutive no-hitters in a season. Nobody's ever done it. Not even Nolan Ryan. You know. So, there's history there. I've got another fun fact about him as a, um, at the Dodgers. He went there in 39 and in 40. He developed one of the earliest batting helmets. After their outfitter, Joe Medwick, got domed up. Yeah. Um, he got beamed, yeah. Yeah, and um, that was one of the first batting helmets I've been people who just patchworking it together for themselves and uh, that's a staple in the base game yeah Larry Phil was just he was something else and then in 41 they won their first pennant in over 20 years yep with Leo DeRocher as the manager yep of course as we said Wainer was on the team and other people and then he uh, enlisted and went and fought in World War II in 1945 he returned back as the president of the Yankees yep him and Dan Topping and Del Webb bought control of the Yankees I don't remember who owned it before them. Uh, it wasn't Rupert, he passed 139, but it was somebody else. They bought control of the Yankees in 45, and I guess they brought night games to Yankee Stadium then too. Yeah, and according to the Baseball Hall of Fame website, um, he was a big part of an owner's committee, mm-hmm. and they implemented benefits for the players, including a minimum of $5,000, pension plan, spring training allowance, and formal representation on a council with owners and league presidents where they would have their inputs and future decisions within baseball. Yeah. And then he um, guided the Yankees to the World Series title in 47 before he resigned. Yeah. Like, he... I, I, I have a biography of his at the house called The Roaring Redhead. It was published in the 80s. And I, th- I guess from what I read from that is after he won the World Series in 1947 with the Yankees... I guess he felt like that's all he could accomplish. He accomplished all he could accomplish in baseball, and he got out. He got the trophy, hit the pinnacle. Yeah. And after that, he basically owned horse, like owned horses, like horse racing. Got yeah, he ran a horse track, and he um, raised cattle. Yeah. So he just he was like, I'm done with baseball, and he gets elected three years after his death in 1978 to the Hall of Fame. Yep, um, and he passed away in 75, got in in 78, Yep. and there's one additional thing I'd like to add about him. Mm-hmm. He is the one that suggested the adoption of divisional league play. 
And he also recommended the addition of the New York Mets and his second team in Los Angeles before he passed away. How awesome is that? Just so he wanted to leave an everlasting. And then his son Lee McPhail. He got in the Hall of Fame in '98. Yep. And he grew up watching his dad become a Hall of Famer, and he wanted to do the same, even though his dad said, "Don't do this, son." Yeah. It's ruined. It's ruled my life for so long. You can do so much better. Don't do this. And he wanted to do that. <laughs> and he's quoted as saying, since my dad, Larry, was in baseball, I grew up in this in the game, and it never occurred to me I wouldn't be going into it after college. Mm-hmm. So, like, that was my goal. Let's do it. Yeah. I've grown up in this game. Let's do it. Um, he was born on uh, in October of 1917, and he... Um, was an executive in 1941 as a business manager for the minor league team that his dad started in Reading, PA. Mm-hmm. He was a GM in the International League for Toronto in the 40s. Yep, the and team. then he also had to go do military service. And he, then he was named the AAA manager for Kansas City. Manager or general manager? He was named the general manager. Okay. For the Yankees AAA farm team. You can't say blues. In right? Kansas City. Yep, in 1946. Nice. And then 48, he became a big league director of player personnel, which I guess is like a GM now. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, and he emphasized a strong farm system, and that helped the club win nine pennants and seven world championships during his tenure. Wow. <laughs> so he's the one that got the Yankees really... Back to... Them, yeah. Um, so apparently his father was a hard-ass... <laughs> dynamic, demanding, and innovative, and he was more conservative and gentle and kid gloves with the players and the athletes yeah. and the staff. Um, and, and he mentions that in his induction speech in '98. You can look up YouTube. You can look up on YouTube. He's like, "Yeah, my dad was dynamic and he was gregarious and all this stuff. I was none of that." That's that's basically what he said in his induction speech. <laughs> I've got a good quote right here off the Baseball Hall of Fame's website. Unfortunately, a person with dad's talent comes along only once every 50 years. I've never thought of imitating. That's smart. Do your own thing. And that's why Larry told his son, Lee, he said, hey, don't do this. Don't go into baseball. But he wanted to be like his dad in that sense to go into baseball. But he wanted to do his own thing and be different from his dad. And I think he succeeded in that. And there's a follow-up to that quote. And it says, I understand my father knows that there's more than one way to get a job done. He puts on a sad face, and everybody he talks to feels sorry for him and gives him a ball player. And if the victim doesn't come across right away, he doesn't leave until what, until he gets what he is after. See? He is persistent. He gets his man. Yep. And following his tenure in New York, he joined the Baltimore Orioles as president and manager from 1958-65, building the team that won the 66 World Series. Yeah. And then... He took a position as chief administrative assistant to the commissioner of baseball, William D. Eckert, who was an Air Force general in 1965, and he was named Major League Executive of the Year by Sporting News 66. But eventually he returned to the Yankees as executive vice president and general manager before becoming the American League president in 74. But when he was with the Yankees in the mid to late 60s to the early 70s, they were not a very good team. There was uh, there's a great book about the Yankees down years called Dog Days by Philip Bash, B-A-S-H-E. Highly recommend that book if you want to read about when 
the Yankees, I guess, sucked, if you want to put it. You know, because it was the decline of, you know, McPhail's in charge of the team with the decline of Mantle and Ford and Barron and all these guys getting older and, you know, they're retiring and trying to find newer stars like Horace Clark and Roy White and all these other people. You know, he was, he was a part of that. And then, you know, before Steinbrenner came in, you know, the years that the Yankees were down and nobody thought they were going to be good. And then he becomes American League president in 74, and he's president from 74 to 83. And we need to find out more stuff about his terms of American League president, but here we go. Under this title of American League president, McPhail contributed, contributed to successful negations in an agreement over free agency, worked to create a settlement during the 81 work stoppage strike, you know, and established cooperation between two leagues. And then he later served as president of the Major League Player Relations Committee from 84 to 85. And then, like I said, we got elected in 98. He passed away in 2012. He passed away on my birthday in 2012. My 22nd birthday. So he had a vast career from the 40s into the 90s. Yeah. So he was, you know, but even though these guys are not players, we would be foolish to not include them into this discussion because they were so influential. Whether you play or not, you make decisions that affect what the game turns into right. going forward. And then Lee's son, Andy McPhail, later became a general manager. I think he was general manager for the Orioles and the Phillies like in the 90s and 2000s, and maybe some other teams too. But they are, the McPhails are a true baseball family, you know. Um, I think Andy McPhail is still in baseball. I believe, yeah, you know, he probably still He is. was the GM for the Twins, Cubs, and he was the president for the Orioles and Phillies. Okay. Um, let's see, let's see. Y'all bear with me for a second. Andy started his career as a baseball executive with the Cubs rookie level minor league team in 1976. He's no longer, as of December 11, 2020, he was let go by the Phillies as special assistant to Pat Gillick, who was their um, general manager. Nice. So as of 2020, he's no longer in baseball. All right, but still. And then one of his kids... Hold on. So it's real to a baseball family. Yeah. I gotta go back, because... We'll go back to the... I'm going, I'm going to Wikipedia. I apologize. Because there's a there's a fourth MacPhail in here that was part of this family. I just gotta find him. <laughs> I saw him in here somewhere. Maybe it was with Larry. Maybe. Grants, Lee McPhail's grandson, Lee McPhail IV, he's been active in baseball as a scout or scouting director for numerous teams, including the Orioles, Twins, Mets, Mariners, Cleveland Indians, Nationals, and Rangers. So, like I said, this is a, like, we're going on like four generations of McPhail's in baseball, starting from the 30s to, I'd say, around now, you know, or at least till last year. Yeah. So. And it seems to me as though they've made moves that, have really affected the way the game is 
grown. Yes. So, um, like night games. Night games. Hello. I mean, that's the biggest <laughs> of everything. What are we going to do at nine o'clock when we're about to go to bed and there's nothing on? We want to watch the Dodgers game. Exactly. All right. All so right. I, I think, think that about covers the McFails for us. Yep, I agree. All right. So the next family we're going to cover is going to be the DiMaggio brothers. You got Joe, Vince, and Dom. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe debuted. In May of 1936, beginning in May at 21 years old, Vince in 1937 at 24, and Dom in 1940 at 23. Joe and Dom both missed three years of their career, keep this in mind when we talk about their numbers, due to World War II. Um, Joe played 13 years in the league, Dom played 11, and Vince played 10. Um, I think Matthew's going to know more about the fan than I am, so I'm going to kind of let him take over from here. So, the DiMaggio brothers were all from the San Francisco area. Vince and Joe were born in Martinez, California, which is not far from Frisco, and Dom was actually born in San Francisco. They lived in San Francisco. All three brothers played for the minor league San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League at at one point or another. Fun fact, Joe DiMaggio had a, I believe it was a 61-game hitting streak in the Pacific Coast League in the 30s, either 34 or 35. Everybody talks about his 56-game hit streak in the majors, but he did a lot better with the with the San Francisco Seals in the Pacific Coast League. And you have to understand that the Pacific Coast League at that time played a lot more games than the majors did because the weather in California was a lot nicer to an extent. Mild, less humid. Yeah, so they they kept playing for a while. Like, the season was fairly longer compared to the major leagues. So, maybe in all those games, you know, a 61-game hitting streak could be possible. But, you know, they were both, all three of them played for the San Francisco Seals. Obviously, Joe DiMaggio is the most well-known one out of all three of them. You know, spent his whole career with the Yankees, won multiple World Series championships with the Yankees. He wins the MVP. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're good. Joe is also very aware of how well of a ball player he was, mm-hmm. and later in his life, he requested to be acknowledged as the greatest living ball player. Yeah, you know, Ted Williams was known as the greatest hitter to ever live. You know, in his time, and Joe DiMaggio wanted to know. You know, everybody knows. He wanted he you to call him the greatest living. Right. You know, that, it's kind of a dick move, right? Yeah, but when you're in the Hall of Fame and you've done accomplished as much as Joe DiMaggio has, you you were entitled to that in 13 seasons, mind you. Like the man didn't—he only played 13 seasons. And he accomplished so much for those 13 years, and uh, he won MVP in '41, which some people thought Ted Williams should have won because he hit 406. But DiMaggio's 56-game history kind of trumped that. And a lot of what I'm seeing is saying that um, Vince should have been able to be very prideful in his brother's success since he was the one who actually got him into the minor leagues mm-hmm. and paved the way for him to play ball on the West Coast. But Joe is kind of cocky, it seems like, looking back on it. One of the greatest series of all time. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking nothing away from that on the field. But it seems like there's some family drama going on here because um, he didn't want to give Vince that kind of credit. And the oldest of the three brothers... That played major league ball. He never felt any gratitude from Joe. Vince did. Um, yeah. And once they got old, they kind of grew apart. Um, yeah. Which 
It's yeah. kind of a shame when you're one of the probably first families baseball kind of deal, you know? Yeah. Some families are like that, unfortunately. And then Dominic came in, and he's... He played for the Red Sox his whole career. Mm-hmm. You know, he's best... You know, one of Ted Williams' best friends, best teammates. Dom played in seven All-Star games. Um, but I'm, what, I, what I've read to study this, um, he came in and he was the most fortunate of the, of the brothers because he was the third one to get in the league. He already had a path paid for him because he had the right name between his shoulder blades. Yep, DiMaggio. Um, and he could play. I mean, And he was the most admirable. Um, a guy named Tom Clavin. Clavin? Clavin? Yeah. Um, he wrote a book and he said in that book, <laughs> like Joe, who was aloof with his longtime teammates, dominant creates sustained strong bonds. Not only with his Red Sox teammates, but with his opponents. Yeah. Whereas Joe, Joe's is kind of, you know, this crotch, crotchety butthead, you know? Yeah, he just, Joe did his own thing, but like... I don't care about you, I'm here to hit baseball, so leave me alone. Hit baseballs and win championships, that's what he did. <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, but Dom, like I said, like, Tom Clavin wrote the book about the DiMaggio's. You know, I would like to read that someday. That's one book I would have on my wish list on this on, but but Dom, like but if you want to know more about Dom and his relationship with Ted Williams, Bobby Doerr, and Johnny Pesky, the teammates of the Red Sox, David Halberstein wrote a book called The Teammates and it's about their you know, friendship as teammates in the forties with the Red Sox. That would be a good episode we could do at some point is those pesky Red Sox back when they had all of these cats. Yeah. Back when they were intriguing, they weren't winning championships, but they were semi-relevant every year. Yeah. And they and all four of those guys stayed very close to their older end days, you know. So. Mm-hmm. But and go, going back to Dom and his more personability, um, after he retired, he was a very successful businessman. Mm-hmm. And he's a generous man, a lot of charity. And um, he had a lot more family members around him when he passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, well, we should talk about Vince's career because he, I think, played the shortest of the brothers. He only played in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Joe was 13, Don was 11, Vince played 10. Vince also did not miss three years due to the war. Right. The other two brothers did. Yeah. Now, Vince, you know, he was an outfield. Wait, was he an outfielder? What was it? Well, he's a center fielder. He played center field like right, right-handed throwing, right-handed hitting, five eleven, hundred eighty-three pounds center fielder. Yeah, but Vince, he mostly, well, he played, yeah, he played some full seasons, but like most of the time, he's just not as well known. He didn't put up a lot of good numbers compared to uh, Vince and Joe. I'm mean, sorry, uh, Dom and Joe. How many hits does Joe have? Joe has 2,000-something points in it. Joe DiMaggio has 2,214 hits. So Vince only has 3,850 at-bats. One shy of 3,849 at-bats. Yeah. So Joe's got half the half the hits that this guy has at-bats, you know? So yeah. he didn't really get the... Yeah. He wasn't the star. No. Joe was the star from the get-go. Was going to be that. Dom's in second place with 1,680 career hits. And uh, Vince has 9, 959. Right, not even 1,000. 
He got 20, 125 bombs though, so over ten percent of his hits were dingers. Yes, but you so know, that's good power numbers. But with somebody who has power, you know, they all, like most power hitters. They also struck out a lot. And Vince... Yeah, he was a 249 hitter, so he was not flirt with the Mendoza line, but yeah, he could have easily been there. And he led the National League in strikeouts one, two, three, four, five, six times in his 10-year career. Yes. Um, he averaged... On a 162-game season, he averaged 122. Yeah. Which, that's high for that time period. I think it's yeah. about average for now. But In his second season in the major leagues, when he was with the Boston, well, they were called the Boston Bees at that point in time for some reason. Right, we can get into that another time. In his second season, he struck out 134 times, and he walked only 65 times. And he hit 228. You know. And, um... At 39, he's on the Cincinnati Reds. When they, he was a part of the team when they won the pennant that year. But he only played in eight games, and he hit like 071. Like, you know, he had one hit and 14 at-bats. Couldn't hit water without a Right. He was not Joe or even Dom, for that matter, when it came to hitting. And different from Joe and Dom, Vince played his entire career in the National League. He played with the Boston... B's from 37 to 38 his first two years 39 to 40 he played with the Reds in the middle of the 40 season he got traded to the Pirates he played with the Pirates from 42 44 he only played two games with the Reds in 40 before getting shipped to play 110 with Pittsburgh right so Vince did not get a World Series ring with the Reds that year because he was stuck with the Pirates Pirates from 42 44 and 43-44, Vince makes the All-Star team. In 1943 is the only time he ever led the league in anything other than the strikeouts, and that was in games played with 157. Yeah. Wow, you know. <laughs> other than that, he only led the league in one thing, strikeouts, yeah. five times, and six I, times. And honestly, and I hate to say this, but maybe the all, the main reason he got into the All-Star game in 43-44 was because his brother and a lot of star players were off in World War II. I don't want it to beat his talents because he did play in the major leagues. He's better than Patrick and I in that stance. But, you know, if you make if your numbers are subpar compared to your brothers and you make the all-star team during the war years, they're probably scraping the bottom of the barrel for all-stars, you know. And so, and then 45, he plays for the Phillies. 46 is last year. He plays six games for the Phillies, and then he gets traded to the New York Giants, and he plays 15 games for them. And he ends his major league career at age 33 in 1946. So like I said, Vince was different from Joe and Dom because he wasn't as great of a hitter, and he played his entire career in the National League. You know, and that's all we can really say about the Maggios because I don't think they've really done anything post- like, they, I don't know if they did anything in baseball post their career. I don't believe so. Um, he was a t- Talking more about Vince. He had a 10-year career, and there was one, two, three, four years, five years of his career where he played 36, 42, 48, 62 games. Yeah. Now, 
60 games over one, two, three, four years of his career. And that, he had a 10-year career, so yeah. he really only played six years. Yeah. But still, you know, he's better, He's still better than Patrick and I because we never played the majors ever. Screw <laughs> him, I'd strike him out. <laughs> and, of course, we all know Joe DiMaggio gets inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1955. I know Ian's listening. He's striking out, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's all we can really say about the Maggios. Yep. Um, and I guess from here, we're going to want to move on to... The Boons. The Boons. They're a great family of baseball. I think they're on their fourth. Possibly, if we have one more to get out of the minor leagues. Yeah. They will be a fifth-generation baseball fan. They will be the only fifth-generation baseball fan. Yep. Um, it starts with Bob Boone. You got Brett Boone, Donald Boone, Aaron Boone. No, hold up. We got to start with Ray Boone. Ray was Bob's dad and Brett and Aaron's granddad. Yes, um, I got a picture right here of his 1960 Tops number 281, Ray Boone, Milwaukee Braves guard, first and third baseman. Yep, that's him. Um, he's a senior member that started in the Boone family. Ray began that trend. He's a World War II vet, and um, he made his debut for the Indians in 48. This is the year they won the World Series. Yep, and um, he was an infielder, first and third base, corner infielder, and he was with the club until I believe 1953 and then he got shipped over to the Tigers mm-hmm. um, and then he wound up with the White Sox he got wound up being a journeyman after that yeah um, started Indians went Tigers White Sox Athletics Braves Braves Red Sox um, he was in the league for 13 years but his last four or five years he was and he was a pretty good hitter. He hit two seventy. His career average was two seventy five. He had a he was a decent hitter. You know, twelve hundred and sixty hits. And he appeared in two two time All Star. Yep. World Series champion. Yep. I mean, I'd give both nuts to be a World Series champion right now. <laughs> I know you would too. Yeah, I would too. So he was accomplished. You know, accomplished player in his thirteen years. You know, not obviously not Hall of Fame, but he did. He he played long enough. I'm sure he played long enough to get a pension. You know, mm-hmm. so he 13 year career, you're getting retirement. Yeah, and um, now his son Bob Boone. Now Bob Boone was a catcher. I believe he was a catcher. He was, yeah. and he was also a manager. Mm-hmm. After catcher, which it seems like catchers and first basemen become managers. Yeah, and he and he started his career in 1972 with the Phillies, and he spent ten seasons with the Phillies, and he was a key member of the 1980 World Series championship team, along with Pete Rose and Steve Carlton and Tug McGraw and all those guys, Mike Schmidt and all those guys, you know, and then after his ten seasons in Philly, he was traded to the California Angels. Well, he spent seven seasons there, and then he spent his last two years with the Kansas City Royals. Mm-hmm. And then he was the manager of the Royals from 95 to 97. Yep. And then he kind of disappeared into the abyss for a few years, and the Reds hired him in the early 2000s. 
which I think. The Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he was the manager in 2001, 2003. Is that when Griffey came back? Yeah. The Reds. Yeah, he came back in 2000. Yeah. And that's when Griffey was with the Reds. Yeah, it was when Griffey was with the Reds. And I think one of the, or both his sons were at least on the on the Reds at one point in time. I'm gonna say this more than one time on this podcast. Griffey would be the all-time homer leader if he had did not have blast wins. If he did not have what? Glass legs. Yeah, absolutely. His leg. Yeah, everybody has their own faults, and that was his Achilles heel, you know? Man couldn't keep a hamstring happy. Yeah. But, um, yeah. um, Bob Boone, he was drafted 126 out of Stanford. Yeah, he, he's got a Pac 12 education right there. So, regardless if he plays baseball, he's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um,. He never had great hitting numbers. He was a 254 guy, hit 105 home runs, yep. drove in 826 runners, um, and even as a manager, his winning percentage was 455. He was 371 and, and 444. Yeah, he was okay. But he had a head for the game. Like, yeah. those guys have been worse. Right. Um, <laughs> he's on the wall of fame for the Phillies. He got inducted in 2005. Yeah. He's um, he did a lot of good. His good work was for the Phillies. Oh, absolutely. He had a slash line of 211, 279, 295 mm-hmm. in 81. Um, that, I think that was his one year where he was an all-star. No, he was a four-time all-star. That was, he was an all-star, 78, 79, 82, 86, and... That's already four. Correct me. I'm correcting myself. All-star, 76, 78, 79, 83, and he's a seven-time gold glove winner, so he was a defensive champ. Yeah. 78, 79, 82, 86, 87, 88, and 89. Mm-hmm. And then when he left Philly, he went to the Angels, and he just, he had a bad year. Um, he didn't catch a perfect game, which is cool. Yeah. And then he got shipped to Kansas City, and he signed over free agent, but he had a broken finger, and it led to his early retirement. Um, he just never really could make it. Yeah. Um, and then his son, Brett Boone. Mm-hmm. Good old Brett. He, uh, I remember him with the Mariners. I remember. Back with the Griffey Mariners. Griffey Mariners and the Etro Mariners, telling one. He was there for that. Well, they won 160. Well, we games. can't say Etro Mariners because there was like seven Etro Mariners. They cycled so many times during that guy's career. The first Etro Mariners in 2001. <laughs> yes. Well, they won 116 games and Etro just dominated everybody. He dominated the American conscience. He just dominated. He just, he just dominated, man. Guy. He tripped ass. I love him. I love him. He still kicks ass. He, he, could, he could still kick ass if he wanted to. Right. But the manager's just like, no, you should retire. <laughs> <laughs> but come be a hitting coach, please. Yeah. So you can still wear a uniform. I heard um, watching him hitting batting practice was just, he could put it upper deck at will. Yeah. Over here at will. Pick a seat. I'll put it within five of it. Like I mean, similar to Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb had power when he wanted to use it. Etro had power when he wanted to use it. Right, they didn't exert themselves to hit for power all the time. But no, I'll hit, I'll hit 200 singles this year. Let's call it good. Yeah, I'll go break George Sisler's all-time, uh, you know, season-to-season hits record in 2004. Yeah, I'm sorry, we're getting off subject. We're Let's get... work smart, not hard. Yeah. That's what I got to say about that. Right, we're all right, but we're back on Brett Boone. Sorry, <laughs> um, he 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 made his major league debut in '92 for the Mariners, and he retired 
in 2005. Career 266 guy, 250, 252 home runs. Yeah. Um, over a thousand ribbies. He played for six teams in his career. I didn't realize he played for the Braves in 99. Very briefly. Um, Mariners, 92-93. Reds, 94-98. Braves, 99. Padres, 2000. Mariners for four years. Five years. 2001-2005. And then into the... Fu- End of the season with his twins in 2005. Five, three-time All-Star, four-time Gold Glove, two-time Silver Slugger, and the RBI leader of the American League in 2001. Very accomplished. Yeah. I mean, you can't ask for much more. Yeah. Um, so now let's talk about... Is there anything else you want to talk about, Brad? Or? So now let's talk about Aaron. <laughs> I will... I got one more thing to add oh, okay, about my Brad. Bad, my bad. He was the first ever third-generation big leaguer. That's awesome. First ever. Um, there's been another one or two since, yeah. Which we might have a follow up episode of this. We're getting some of those, but we got to pick the good ones for now. There's a lot of baseball families we could go into, but these are the the top what four. And another cool fact about him: on the last day of the 1998 season, the Reds made him. Let me read this verbatim from Wikipedia. On the last day of the 1998 season, the Reds helped him make baseball trivia history by starting the only infield ever composed of two sets of brothers, Stephen Larkin and Barry Larkin and Brett Boone and Aaron Boone. Two sets of brothers on the same infield. Four infielders, two sets of brothers. I forgot that Barry's brother played. It's been done one time. hasn't been done since. That's another family, if we do a follow-up, the Larkins. Yeah, right on. Those guys get hit. Yeah. Then, All right, and Aaron, then we're going to move on to the uh, ladder boom. Aaron. Yeah, the current Yankees manager. <laughs> so Aaron got a start with Cincinnati, 97. Like I said, like I said, he's teammates with Brett, 97-98. He plays from 97 to 2003 with Cincinnati. Middle of the season, 2003, he gets traded to the Yankees. And we all know what happened in the... ALCS of the 2003 season. Aaron Boone hits that home run and helps the Yankees win the American League Championship that year. The seminal home run in Old Yankee Stadium that will always get played on replays when you talk about playoff, big playoff moments in the postseason. And then he didn't play at all in the 2004 season. I think he was in, it, baseball reference says he was injured. Not really sure what happened. We'll have to look it up. But the are you looking it up, Patrick? Or no? He gets he's injured. He he's out for the whole year, which that's a bummer. Two thousand five, the Yankees traded him to Cleveland. He plays with the Indians for two seasons. Two thousand seven, he's with the Marlins. Two thousand eight, the Nationals. So he gets to be on the Nationals in their first their first season playing at Nationals Park. So that was cool. And then 2009, he finishes his career with the Houston Astros playing 10 games. He's a career 263 hitter. Uh, he hit 126 home runs and 555 RBIs in 12 years, 12 seasons. And he made one All-Star team in 2003 in his split season year with the Yankees and the Reds and the Yankees. I think he was an All-Star with the Reds. He's played more games with the Reds and the Yankees. I know he's got a wagon of a team right now coming into the playoff stretch. Yeah. 
They got all those big names healthy for once. Yeah, Judge, Stanton, Brett Gardner, Derek Cole, Gio Urshela. Look at this cheesy ass picture of him as a Met. A Brett Boom? That's Brett Boom. Yeah. <laughs> as a Met? I forgot he was a Met. That's the cheesiest picture. That's so cheesy. For y'all at home, he's wearing the Mets home pinstripe jersey. He's leaned over the bat with his fighting necklace and his fighting armband. Yeah. Those of y'all that listen that played baseball, you know about the fighting stuff. <laughs> just a shit-eating grin. It's great. Honestly, when, when <laughs> Brett's always had that grin, that smile, compared to Aaron. Aaron looks like a bad boy. His smile looks like more like a bad boy compared to Brett, who looks like a good boy. You know what I'm saying? And also, you know, Bob played at Stanford, but Brett and Aaron both went to USC. They're Trojans, you know? So that's cool. I bet they talk trash about it at Thanksgiving. I'm sure they do. <laughs> we ready to do the Griffies and wrap it up? Yeah, let's talk about the Griffs. All right, now last family we got to talk about today. The first father-son duo to ever hit back-to-back home runs in a Major League Baseball game. Mm-hmm. At the Kingdom yep. in Seattle will be uh, King Griffey and King Griffey Jr. Yep. They both hail from the North Pennsylvania, where, as I'm sure some of you all know, baseball hall of famer Stan Musial was born in Denora. And Stan Musial knew of the Griffies because he knew, you know, Ken Sr.'s dad, Ken Jr.'s granddad, Buddy Griffey. They went to high school together. So that's cool. You know, small town, Pennsylvania have all those baseball greats. So let's talk about Ken Griffey Sr. first. Because he's the eldest. He was a average hitter. He yep. was never a power guy. Um, let me see, what was his batting average? He only hit 152 home runs in his career. 300 batting average, so damn near. He was 296 batting average. Yeah. And he was a seminal part of the Cincinnati Reds' big red machine of the 70s. He was a member of their 75 and 76 World Championship teams. You know, people when, they, when people think of the big red machine, he's up there with Rose, Bench, Tony Perez, Joe Morgan, Davey Concepcion, George Foster, who's from Tuscaloosa. Alabama guy. Uh, and that's all I can think of when it comes to that. But he's up there. He's always up there with those guys when people think of Big Red Machine players. Similar part of Big Red Machine. He plays in, you know, I gotta go back. I lost the. So he played from the Reds starting in 1973. He played from the Reds from 73 to 81. Was the Yankees for a brief period until. Uh... The midway point of A6, and uh, had a year and a half and two years in Atlanta. Yep. He was a brave. And then, and then he bounced back to Cincy. Yep. And then he finished his career with Seattle with King Griffey Jr., his son. As a player manager. As a player manager, which that's something you don't see these days. Anymore. For two years he was at Seattle, he played 90 and 91 in Seattle. Well, he left Cincinnati. He played 46 games at Cincinnati, and then in 
in 1990, and then he did 21 in Seattle, and only 30 in 91. So he was more managing than playing. Not like Pete Rose when he was playing managing. He was playing every day. Yeah. And then the big moment there that everybody remembers is at the uh, Kingdome when him and his son went back-to-back, and they're still the only father-son duo to ever go back-to-back back, back back in a major league baseball game. Great moment. Yeah, I'd, I'd watch it right now to get me going. Now, have you ever seen the video on SB Nation's YouTube channel? It talks about the history of the Seattle Mariners. And in episode one, maybe it was two, they mention King Griffey Jr. They mention a, a moment in King Griffey Jr.'s growing up where King Griffey Sr. was playing with the Yankees in the 80s. And I guess King Griffey Jr., young King Griffey Jr., was horsed around in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, what? Clubhouse. Yeah, Clubhouse. Clubhouse, yeah. With, I guess, another player or something. I've heard this. I'm looking forward to rehearing it. And Yankees manager Billy Martin, you know, the ever, the, just a fun guy to be around. I'm joking, of course, but, you know, he yelled something at Ken Griffey Jr. about, you know, get the kid the F out of here pretty much. And from that day forward, Ken Griffey Jr. has harbored a hatred for the New York Yankees ever since. There's a story of him when he um, when he left Cincinnati and was about to get shipped to the Reds. Or not Cincinnati. Uh, when he left Seattle and was going to get shipped to the Reds. Somebody asked him, did you ever go play for the Yankees? And he said, F no. I will never play for them. I despise them. I hate them. I'm not saying it verbatim, but he was just like, absolutely not, because of the story you just told. Yeah, that man did not care for the Yankees. Now, King Griffey Jr., you know, what? there's lots to talk about with Jr. Great, one of the greatest players of all time. The prettiest swing to ever see in baseball. Yeah, absolutely. His swing was almost sexual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going there, but yeah. Great, great player. Hit, you know, so many, hit over 600 home runs. We, he Had could, he stayed healthy, he'd be the all-time home run leader. Yeah, he could have passed Aaron if he stayed healthy, but like Patrick has said, he had glass legs. Excuse me. Now, I've seen King Griffey Jr. play live in Cincinnati in 2006. I saw him once. I don't remember much. I can look at, we can look up on baseball reference, but I don't remember. It was in June of 2006. They played the White Sox at Great American Ballpark. I don't remember the day. I got the tickets at home. But, you know, I got to see him play, and that was a thrill. I don't remember what he did that day. I don't think he hit a home run, but seeing him in person was a great thrill in my life. You know, I, was like, I saw one of the greats. And then, in 2019, during the Hall of Fame, during my internship, I see King Griffey Jr. again, this time in a, in a suit. And the day before the induction ceremony, that, you know, 2019 was the year that Edgar Martinez got inducted. And in, on Saturday, the day before the induction, they had a little, the Seattle Mariners, former Seattle Mariners players had a little round table discussion. It was like Griffey, Jay Buhner, Mike Cameron, and some other former 90s Mariners players that played with Edgar Martinez. They had a little roundtable discussion at Double Day Field. 
Those are a bunch of uh, big names. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> Mike Cameron, they're talking about Edgar Martinez, and Mike Cameron's talking, and he's got the microphone, and he's like, you know, Edgar, he said something along the lines of like, you know, Edgar, you know, he was he was a great stable leader, and, you know, we needed a stable guy to, you know, he said the word stable in this, and King Griffey Jr. gives him this look, and he's just like, He's just like kind of like peeking, looking at Cameron from his from the side of the diet, the dais, and Griffey like motions the moderator to give him the microphone, and he, he gets the microphone and he looks at my Cameron and he's saying, "So are you saying that I'm unstable, like that? You know, like in that tone?" And Mike's like, "Oh, oh, uh, no, no!" And, you know, he's just like backtracking. He's like, "Oh, no, I didn't mean that. No, no, no I didn't mean that, Griffey." And you then, don't talk to the kid like that, right? And then Jay Buner. <laughs> Gets out of his seat, walks up to Mike Cameron, and just takes his microphone and walks back to his seat. Everybody laughed. Let me take this shovel out of your hand. Yeah. Let me keep you from digging this hole. So, to experience that was hilarious because, you know, King Griffey Jr., he's the kid. He's got that kid ch- kind of childlike personality. You made wearing your hat backwards cool. Right. You know, I love King Griffey Jr., and so that's. 13 time All Star. 13 time All Star, yeah. Seven times Slaughter. Mm-hmm. Ten time Gold Glove winner. Four-time home run leader, 94, he skipped 95 and 96. We'll get into McGuire and stuff later. Yeah. But in 97, 98, and 99, American League RBI leader, retired by retired number in two different major league franchises. Yeah. And he's on the MLB All-Century team. What more can he ask for? And also in 98, when McGuire and Sosa got all the national coverage, I think Griffey hit like 56 home runs that year. In the American League, over fifty. So you know, of course, he got overshadowed by McGuire and Sosa like that. You know, <laughs> any other year in the nineties, he would have been the home run leader, right? But ninety-eight was just a bad if he had taken a little bit of juice, he'd have fucking broken the record, right? But he probably wouldn't have gotten the Hall of Fame. Somebody would, nah. yeah. But those were two of my, and I saw Griffey again at the Hall of Fame this year, but. Those were my two favorite memories of Griffey. Seeing him in person playing with the Reds in 2006 with my family. And then 2019, during that roundtable discussion, just, you know, giving the mean look to Mike Cameron because Mike Cameron didn't, you know, didn't call him stable. What's up, Mike? So he looked at Mike and was like, what's up, Mike? Why you got to do me like that? I'm sure there's YouTube video of this. I'm sure somebody filmed it, but... Just seeing that in person was just hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> also, in 2016, when he got inducted, he had the highest percentage of anybody ever to be inducted in the Hall of Fame since Tom Seaver. Yeah. Because Tom Seaver was unanimous, if I'm not mistaken. No, he was close to unanimous. He was like, and all these old school sports writers like nobody deserves to be unanimous. Right. Mario Mario Rivera was unanimous. He was the first ever, but that was right. 2018. 2019. That's 19. my year. That was my year. Yeah. Okay. He's the first ever, and uh, the only person that is any closer is Griffey at 99.3. He missed, I think, one vote. Yeah, and like Ty Cobb had like 98.2 or something like that in 36. So That's my one gripe with the Hall of Fame is the sports writers. You're also going to have that one guy that's just like, right? no, sir, you're not going unanimous. I know you're getting in. I'm not giving you my vote, even though you deserve to be there. I know, it's like the people who are just bashing Jeter who didn't vote for Jeter in 2020. I'm just like... Whatever. Jeter deserves to be a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. It also needs to be noticed 
that he was defensively not as great as everybody thinks he was. Yeah. I mean, he got it when he said it, for sure. And, like, you know, making great plays. <laughs> oh, 100% Hall of Famer. Yeah. No. And he's got a couple of big-time plays that stand out, but that makes everybody think it's like the Jeter in the hole. Yeah. Everybody wants to go Jeter in the hole. And also... Everybody wants to go Jeter cut off the plate. Mm-hmm. Just, but people also don't realize that he's like a career, what was it, like 940 fielder? Something like that. Yeah, we'll look it up. <laughs> but, you know, and also going back to Griffey, his son, I think it was Trey, I think it was Trey Griffey, he played football at Arizona, University of Arizona. How cool. Yeah, um, he did. How cool is I that? I remember Griffey being on the sidelines, um, taking pictures of him. He took photography as a hobby after he retired, and he was on the sidelines a lot. So did, his son. So did Randy Johnson. Yeah, I was, that's how cool is that? He also uh, at field Standard fielding, he was 976. So, it, not as bad as we thought it was, but... Uh, Either way, so I think to wrap up, you know, we talked about five different families, right? We talked about the Wainers, the MacPhails, the Boones, and the Griffiths. That's four. Wait. Wainers, MacPhails, Dimaggio's, Boones, and Griffiths. Yeah, we talked about five great baseball families. I thought we got about 20 more to do. We. <laughs> We're probably going to do a second part of this because there's, I'm sure we've left out a whole bunch. And if you guys, we might do a third and a fourth, who knows? You know, we got to find something to kill time during the offseason. But but we're going to talk about other stuff too. Don't get me wrong. You know, our friend Ian Tabor, you know, commented on Facebook that a topic, a a show about Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken Jr. I think the Iron Man episode will be our next one. Yeah. We'll cover that next week. Yeah. we can talk well, at least two weeks from now. Yeah, we can talk about that. And then, I don't know how far you want to get into this, Patrick, but after that, we discussed about talking about the 98 home run race. That'd be... Yeah, I think that'd be a good topic. We have also talked about... That's what made people like me, you, Ian, that suggested Gehrig and... Ripken. Um, Ripken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that uh, like that's what made people in our age demographic love baseball. Yeah, was that summer? I remember where I was at when McGuire hit seven. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure Ian does. I know he's listening. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's great. I don't I don't care. If, and honestly, I I don't care if he did steroids. That made people fall in love with baseball. People love dingers. They love dingers. Chicks do long ball. What? I love that commercial with uh, Glavin and Glavin and Maddox. Maddox. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's just that was simple. So, and Mark McGuire was in that commercial too, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So anyway, to wrap up, we talked about five great baseball families. There's lots more we can talk about. But there will be a sequel to this. It won't be back to back like we did Connie Mack, but yeah, we we can talk about it at a later time, like December or January. But, you know, and there's lots of, like I said, there's lots of baseball families. And we picked, for the first, the first part is we picked five that I, we, we believe were like the cream of the crop and importance in baseball history. Especially, at least with the MacPhails and their influence on, in the executive side. And, of course, the, 
the players like the Wayner brothers who are both in the Hall of Fame and the DiMaggio's and the Boones and the uh, Griffey's. So I I have nothing more else to say. I think that that's a good way to end the episode. I think we're set. Um, make sure y'all like, subscribe, and comment on YouTube. Or not YouTube. <laughs> we're not there wish yet. YouTube. We're not there yet. <laughs> make sure you like, subscribe, and reply on Spotify, Apple, Google. We're on Google. We're on a bunch of others. Uh, we're on Anchor. Anchor, yeah. Um, and we appreciate y'all's support. We've got a good base of listeners, and we're happy to have that. And make sure you tell your friends about it. And, and until next time. Oh, don't forget the website. I know the website, the, the email. Oh, and you can email us anything you would like to hear at Baseball History, Baseball HIS, HIS 101 at gmail.com. Yep. Baseball HIS 101 at gmail.com. Yep. And you can also leave us notes on Anchor if you listen to that platform about what you'd like to hear. Yep. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks, man. Um, we'll see y'all here in a couple weeks. But um, I think we're going to do... Griffey. Griffey. Uh, no, well, I'm sorry. Gary. Oh, you know what I did now. Gary. <laughs> Gary. And Ripken. Thank y'all so much. Thank you.